Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down through all eternity. The crying of humanity. Tis then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. Things keep getting weirder and weirder out there, but I hope you're good. Um, it's fucking... It's, it's really warm in my house tonight, so I've cracked open some of the windows, so you may be able to hear late night traffic and uh, errant hooligans roaming the streets outside, so I do apologize about that. Um, I have a new mic as well, as you may be able to hear, and a pop filter and everything, so I am definitely feeling a little bit more professional right now, um, even if I don't sound it. And this is going to be a bit of a monster episode by our usual standards. Uh, I'm alternating between beer and ice-cold tap water for the duration. And don't forget the feedback, questions, suggestions, uh, criticism even, whatever. They can now be sent to ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. That's ghoststoriesend at gmail.com get in touch tell me some stuff about the cia and the gangster moloch cult that has enslaved us all perhaps there is a local chapter in your area that you could infiltrate and tell us all about so this episode was supposed to be about P2 Masonic Lodge and Banco Ambrosiano and Roberto Calvi, but while I was throwing together my notes, I realized that chronologically, it probably makes more sense to do the episode about heroin trafficking and the Second Mafia War first. Before we uh, can properly begin, though, there's something that's been bugging me that I need to kind of articulate as best as I can here. Uh, basically... I find myself walking a tightrope a lot of the time with this podcast because, believe it or not, I'm I'm not really a fan of true crime. Um, I mean, I am interested in crime as a social phenomenon, and I enjoy talking about the political and economic and social factors that that drive crime. But um, the the kind of the trashy. Uh, serial killer sort of thing that you see on Netflix and elsewhere. It's not, it's not really my bag, baby. You know what I mean? But I know that as with the Detroit episode and the Brabant Killers episode, and now this one, um, I cannot escape the fact that I am actually using the, the deaths and the suffering of real people to tell these stories so it puts me in a weird frame of mind and a weird position because i like i said i fucking truly really hate true crime as a genre and i find it really exploitative and lurid and tacky but 
I am at the same time kind of dabbling in true crime. But the difference is, I hope anyway, that I think these stories really matter from a, a social and political and historical perspective. And I'm not saying that like all the other true crime stories don't, but I think that if you want to tell the story of weird politics and secret histories and things like that, you do kind of need to talk about gangsters and murderers and, and all the rest of it. And I guess you could say that I am trying to avoid being called out by like kind of self-consciously acknowledging all of this. Um, but all I'll say is I, I, I am basically just really trying not to come across as the kind of dickhead who gawps at a traffic accident, you know what I mean? And particularly when it comes to Italy, I think, again, I think I've already said this, but uh, it genuinely is one of my favorite places in the whole world. So please don't think that I think that it's just like a cesspit of gangsters and drug dealers and killers. It's just that it's impossible to tell the story of Italy's 20th century without also talking about the Mafia or the Camorra or the Andrangheta. So I guess ultimately I just want you guys to know that I am aware that if I don't handle this shit right, it will just come off as tacky and crap. So yeah, I just wanted to get that off my chest. Anyway, let's crack on with the episode. I'll start by telling you about a tradition that they have in Sicily. Every spring for centuries, fishermen have set up a maze of nets and traps in the channel water between Levanzo and Favignana. And this maze is there to capture the bluefin tuna migrating from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mediterranean. And at the right time, the signal is given and the nets are very carefully drawn in, which forces the tuna into what the fishermen call the camera della morte, which is the death chamber. And then the fish are hauled onto the boats with harpoons and knives and killed. And in videos of the event, the ocean, which the death chamber, which is ringed by the fishing boats, making escape impossible for the tuna, it turns into this bright red churn of blood and gore and dying spasming fish. It's fucking awful man it's really intense and disturbing but this mass call is what they call la matanza which is the slaughter and the second mafia war that erupted in italy in the late 70s and carried on through the 80s and early 90s is also known as la matanza because it was the culmination of a similarly slow patient encirclement of what we might think of as the mafia establishment by the upstart Carlianesi, who were a ruthless, ambitious clan hailing from, uh, naturally enough, the village of Corleone. For years, the Corleones had been dismissed out of hand as peasants and shepherds by the supposedly more refined and sophisticated families in Palermo. Uh, we might think of these as uh, mafia bluebloods almost, to go back to uh, what we were talking about at the start of the show, think of it as a kind of red state, blue state, Hicks versus the urban center kind of thing. And what, what these Palermo families had done is 
they'd barred the Colleons from accessing much of the heroin trade, and they were cut out of most of the relationships with the Italian political establishment, especially the Democrazia Cristiana, the DC. So what the Colleons did instead was go off the reservation, and they set up their own smuggling routes, and, and they began kidnapping prominent figures and investing the ransom money and winning over other mafia clans and politicians who were also outside the Palermo center. And they even started secretly initiating new members without the authority of the commission, which is one of the biggest no-nos it's possible to imagine in the mafia. And then finally, they launched what was effectively a coup d'etat against Cosa Nostra's leadership itself. The war is a seriously, seriously under-discussed and overlooked bit of modern European history. Uh, it lasted a little over a decade, and there were something like a thousand murders linked to the conflict. In fact, uh, historians and uh, police agencies now think they probably were there were probably actually more murders than that. And there were plenty of political consequences too. They, in fact, huge political consequences. And yet, this story is barely known really, outside of Italy itself. And I suppose you could say like the, the true crime obsessive community, which is a shame because it easily had more uh, ramifications for the Italian state than Giulio and Andriotti's Gladio revelations ever did. In fact, it ties directly into what we'll be talking about next episode, which is Banco Ambrosiano and P2 Masonic Lodge. And it arguably set the stage for today's political scene in Italy. And we are going to get to all of that, all of the political ramifications and the war itself. But before we can talk about that, we need to talk about heroin, because if we don't know what was at stake, we can't understand why the violence reached the heights that it did. Gladio episode, uh, we talked about how the Allies, and specifically the OSS, saw the usefulness of the Mafia as a bulwark against the rise of communism in Italy. And we also talked about how they helped the clans rebuild in the wake of fascism and World War II. And again, I do have to emphasize, and I know I sound like I'm on a hobby horse about this, but Mussolini's war on the Mafia has become a staple of the historical record now. But it does have to be said that many of the top bosses were largely untouched by the repression. They just kind of deactivated their crews and threw up some fascist flags and waited out the storm. But there were plenty of lower-ranking soldiers who were deported or sentenced to internal exile or really long prison sentences or who just straight up fled to America. And together with the war, this had left uh, Cosa Nostra in an extremely weak state until Alan Dulles and James Angleton started cutting deals with them. By the 50s, the CIA was fully established and committed to fighting the Cold War using whatever means necessary. And we have to remember that all its job is really supposed to be 
like when you break it down to its its constituent components is intelligence gathering, which it is then supposed to compile into easy to read documents that it hands to politicians. And then it's supposed to be up to the politicians to decide what to do with that information. But already by 1953, Dulles is orchestrating a coup in Iran and uh, the organization as a whole is effectively a state within a state in the U.S. and supposedly in the name of anti-communism, it's training death squads and planning coups and assassinations against foreign heads of state. And it's also trafficking vast, incalculable quantities of heroin. The CIA, it's safe to say at this point, has been intimately involved in the global drug trade ever since it was founded. And I would in fact say that it is no accident that Afghanistan's opium production has skyrocketed ever since the US invasion in 2001. By design, the agency is secretive and paranoid and it's ruthless. And they decided very early on that if they were going to fight this cold war, they were going to need a lot more seed capital than they were receiving from the US treasury. And if they wanted to win and get rich in the process, they were going to need to operate way beyond the oversight of, um, you know, those goddamn pink holes in Washington. And that's my American accent anyway. And with the communist movements uh, in Vietnam and China proving to be um, thorns in the side of the US designs for the region, like those scary commies threatening to break out and conquer the whole of Asia, the agency seems to have figured that they could finance a strategy of containment by establishing a foothold in the Golden Triangle where the fertile soil of Laos and Thailand and Myanmar, which back then was called Burma, made it the biggest source of opium production in the world in the 1950s. And I guess Afghanistan would probably have that distinction now. So the agency backed a bunch of warlords who effectively conquered the opium manufacturing and trafficking trade in very little time. And as the heroin began to flow out of Asia and across Europe, the CIA came to establish very strong ties with the Corsican Mafia. And this is what we now call the French Connection. Heroin refineries have existed in Marseille since at least the 1930s operated by the Corsican mobs who established a presence in, in that southern region of France. But it wasn't until the post-war era that the Corsican mafia really came into its own as a heroin syndicate. And this is in no small part due to the CIA who protected the clans in exchange for them going after communists and trade unionists because at this time, the CIA had an absolute obsession with securing European ports, and they were convinced that if a leftist trade union movement ever made inroads into Marseille, uh, the ports of Marseille, that is, um, that was basically the beginning of the end for European capitalism. And this is a story that you'll find time and again with the CIA. Everything they do basically is, is justified by being scared that one thing or another was the beginning of the end for capitalism if it was left to run unchecked. Now, although they're distinct organizations, the Corsican crews and the Sicilian mafia um, are very close geographically because of where the islands are. So they, they have a lot of um, business and cultural overlap. 
So it didn't go unnoticed by the Sicilian mobsters when the Corsican clans suddenly became flush with cash in the 1950s, while the Sicilians were stuck eking out a living from protection rackets and cattle rustling and smuggling cigarettes. But all of this changed when Joe Bonanno, who was the head of the Bonanno crew in New York, led an American mafia delegation on a visit to Sicily in 1957. And the item at the top of the agenda was the heroin business. So Joe set up shop in the Grand Hotel Ede Palm. And over the course of, they think about three or four days, the American and Sicilian delegations hashed out how the Sicilian clans would actually take over the importing and distribution of heroin into the United States. Now, the American mafia always intended the Sicilian role to be subordinate. But as we'll see later on, the Sicilians would end up proving to be a lot savvier than this. And for a while, the Sicilian Mafia was always second to the Corsicans in terms of the uh, control of the, the transatlantic heroin trade because they just they didn't have the organizational capabilities of the clans in Marseille. But after this conference in 1957, Sicily would play an important role anyway in heroin's journey from the poppy fields in the Golden Triangle and then Turkey to the ports in Marseille to the streets of American cities, which ended up giving them the upper hand over their American colleagues in the end. Simply put, what the American and Sicilian mobsters agreed on at this Bonanno conference would end up serving as ground zero for all the violence that was going to explode uh, through the coming decades. And the gangsters who attended the meeting reads like a who's who of mid-20th century mafiosi. You've got guys like Joe Bananas. Uh, sorry, that was, that was Joe Bonanno's nickname. Carmine Galante uh, on the American side of things. And then on the Sicilian side, you have major, major figures like Salvatore Greco, Angelo La Berbera, Gaetano Badalamenti, and a man who we've mentioned already in previous episodes and who we'll be talking about a little bit later, Tommaso Buscetta. And acting as a mediator between these two sides was Charles Lucky Luciana, who's maybe the most well-known gangster in history after Al Capone and at this point it's probably worth taking a couple of minutes just to go on a little tangent and have a chat about Lucky Luciano because it's very interesting that he was here and I can't help but remember that Luciano was mobbed up with the CIA going back to World War II in the late 30s, Luciano was given a, a 30 to 50 year sentence for what they called white slavery, which was basically uh, pimping and extortion. During the Second World War, while he was in prison, he was approached by reps from the Office of Naval Intelligence, and they wanted him to use his underworld connections to keep the New York docks free of Nazi spies. And, and this was really the main reason. Um, use his pull in the dock worker unions to prevent labor disputes and deter uh, trade unionists from causing any trouble. And they'd be pointed to Lu Luciano by his lifelong friend, Maya Lansky. And Lansky, in turn, was by this point possibly the most powerful criminal in uh, the U.S., and this was in no small part because of the friends in elite circles that he'd been cultivating ever since Prohibition. He had a very, very 
very close relationship with J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director. And if you look deep enough into Lansky and Hoover's relationship, you will start to find some very interesting rumors that have echoes of the Jeffrey Epstein case. Basically, the story goes that Lansky had amassed a mountain of blackmail dirt by throwing these lavish parties and trafficking young men and women. And some of them were extremely young uh, from some of the rumors. Um, trafficking these young men and women to influential people in the US political and legal scene. And supposedly he had files stuffed with photographs of people like Hoover getting their rocks off at these orgies with male and female escorts. And this is probably the main reason beyond fucking hating the Kennedy clan. This is probably the main reason why Hoover refused to acknowledge the existence of a national crime syndicate or the American mafia until Appalachia and the Valachi testimony forced him into admitting, yeah, the mafia is real. Uh, I've even seen it suggested that this was this Lansky blackmail operation was actually the first iteration of the exact same trafficking syndicate that Lansky's protege, Roy Cohn, took control of, um, followed shortly afterwards by Epstein himself in the 1990s. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but that's what I've read in some sources. Now, there's also a long-standing rumor that Luciano had actually helped organize the Allied invasion of Sicily, but it's here where I've got to kind of call a timeout because this this is seriously over-egging the pudding. I mean, in the Gladio episode, we already talked about how the OSS, which became the CIA, had done plenty of homework on Sicily before the invasion, and they already knew exactly which bosses to reach out to and where to send uh, delegations. I think it's possible that Luciano may have given them a few extra names to look up, but he certainly had no more involvement than that. Nevertheless, though, Luciano's life after the war is very curious because his sentence was commuted as part of the deal that he'd worked out with naval intelligence and then the OSS. And on his release, he was deported to Italy. But pretty soon after that, he moved to Cuba for a time and carried on running his New York family from Havana. And he also traveled pretty freely all around Europe and South America and the Caribbean, setting up new rackets and attending various crime conferences. Uh, the US government supposedly pressured the Batista regime to deport him back to Italy, which they did. And it's here where he helped broker this Bonanno conference. But I do find it interesting that this guy, who is maybe the most famous American gangster of his era at this point, <clears throat> was able to set up a heroin trafficking convention in essentially the capital city of the Sicilian mafia. And his presence at the meeting attracted absolutely no attention from the Italian or the US authorities. And given his close links to the Bonanno family and Lansky, and as we've said, Lansky was about as spooked up as you can be without becoming a full-on CIA agent or FBI agent, my hunch is that this whole thing, in some roundabout fashion, was sanctioned. Now, I'm not saying that the CIA actually booked the hotel and laid on the airfare and the room service, but I think that with the Sicilians proving so useful on the anti-communist front, and it pretty much, by their nature, 
making it inevitable that they were going to get involved in heroin anyway. The agency, I think, probably figured what could it hurt to open up a bit more of the heroin trade for Cosa Nostra and bring them into the fold with the Corsicans so that we can keep them a little bit closer, like a little little sweetener, a little thanks for all your hard work kind of thing. So I think that at this point, they made some kind of conscious decision to adopt a, a hands-off approach. Now, Luciano would end up dying from a heart attack at Naples Airport just before he could meet a film producer and biographer who he was going to sell his life story to. And that has uh, ramifications for what happened later that year, 1962. But we will get to that in a second. So after it was settled on, on how they were actually going to run this operation and who was going to be responsible for what, the Sicilians initially faced two uh, delicate political problems. The first was, how do you keep your friends in the DC on side if you are branching out into heroin trafficking? Uh, The clans have always trafficked drugs, like don't get me wrong, but a heroin operation on this scale was fairly unprecedented prior to 1957. But this issue turned out to be one of those problems that takes care of itself almost because once Cosa Nostra began moving that heroin money through Sicilian and Italian banks and doubling campaign contributions and the like, it became pretty obvious that the DC would be fucking insane to suddenly decide that they they couldn't be friends with mobsters. You, you would be mad to walk away from all that cash. And then given the booming Italian economy at this point, the Palermo clans especially were investing in all kinds of construction and manufacturing and transportation and import and export businesses. And this helped build extremely close ties with a number of up-and-coming DC politicians. Chief amongst them was a guy called Salvo Lima, who was the mayor of Palermo between the late 50s and the early 60s. Now, it's widely, it's well known that Lima's dad was a made guy in a Palermo family. And there've always been suspicions that Lima himself was actually sworn in to the mafia at some point prior to becoming mayor. Um, There certainly, there wouldn't be anything unusual about that given Sicily's history. And he was also Giulio Andriotti's eyes and ears for the island, which is a connection that the mafia would rely on time and again in the years to come. And another guy that they became extremely close to was a guy called Vito Ciantimino, who was a public works assessor, and then became Palermo's mayor in 1970. And this guy is ludicrously corrupt. I mean, absurdly corrupt. He even openly advanced uh, his belief that Italy as a society would collapse entirely without um, a system of bribery to keep the wheels greased kind of thing. And he helped mafia-backed construction firms win a lot of public works contracts, which resulted in the sack of Palermo, which is a notorious incident in Sicily's history, where the green belt and the protected historical architecture around the city, uh, villas dating back hundreds and hundreds of years, were all just destroyed, just torn down wholesale to make way for these really shitty quality apartment and office blocks. Now, the second problem was going to be the biggest one for Cosa Nostra, And that's because 
The mafia can have all the parliamentary mechanisms and internal rules and commission meetings that it likes, but ultimately it is still made up of guys who have appalling impulse control, which means that the heroin trade was inevitably going to cause a lot of trouble given how many pre-existing feuds and rivalries there were in Cosa Nostra. And on top of that, the Mafia's ruling commission, which is supposed to mediate disputes and settle conflicts, became more and more influential as the heroin boom tilted the balance of power in their favour at the expense of less influential or wealthy clans. And as a matter of fact, it didn't take long for arguments about heroin to snowball into a full-on conflict in 1962, and this became known as the First Mafia War. Now, again... Not to get on my uh, pedantic high horse, but the name here is as misleading as calling the Second Mafia War the Second Mafia War because, well, the Mafia has had wars ever since its foundation. So calling calling it the First or the Second Mafia War is, is just ridiculous. It's always had wars. But what it does helpfully illustrate is how like horribly short uh, Italy's uh, legal memory actually is. Uh, how how awfully short its political memory actually is. Um, anyway, I'm climbing off the horse again. So the war itself is, is typically complicated and it's hard to follow. So in short, a drug shipment to New York arrived lighter than it should have been and an argument began between the Greco and the Liberbera clans over who was responsible for this missing heroin. And with Luciano dead, there was no intermediary between New York and Sicily. So they then followed almost two years of drive-by shootings and disappearances and kidnappings and car bombings, which culminated in the Chayaculi massacre in 1963, when a group of carabinieri and bomb disposal guys from the military were called to investigate a suspicious-looking Alfa Romeo that was parked on the outskirts of Palermo, and it turned out that it was packed with TNT. So when the cops tried to defuse it, the car exploded and killed seven of them. And this took the war's total death toll at that point to almost 70 people, roundabouts. Anyway, the second that bomb went off, the bosses knew that they were absolutely fucked because uh, killing cops and other representatives of the Italian state was usually forbidden unless they, the mafia deemed it absolutely necessary. But here, that happened for the dumbest reason imaginable, which is that somebody abandoned the car full of TNT because it had a flat tire. The whole country sat up and took notice of what was happening in Sicily at this point. And many of the bosses deactivated their rackets basically overnight because the public outcry was so intense and the demands that they were making of the state to take the problem seriously were increasing by the day. For the bot, politicians in Sicily and Rome, Chiaculi was exactly the kind of embarrassment that they had been dreading because something like this could bring a lot of attention and shed a lot of light on this intricate system of bribes and kickbacks and vote farming that they had set up with the, ma the, the mafia families. And I can only imagine the behind the scenes conversations that were going on at this time. But here's the thing that for all the outrage, the politicians ultimately knew that the solution, um, as always in Sicily around this time, was 
um, to basically say the right things to the press and to grieving relatives, let the courts crack on with holding their trials of the mobsters that they've been able to round up and basically hope the whole thing just blew over. This was different because it, it, it punctured this kind of apathy and complacency that had developed around the existence of the mafia. Of the, I think there were about 120 mobsters. There were, there were over a thousand arrests and about 120 mobsters all told actually ended up going on trial. But the end result was basically a bunch of acquittals or uh, time served verdicts or sentences for minor crimes like criminal association. And a bunch of other guys who were already on the run were sentenced in absentia. And it seems like that urge, that urge to, as ever, do the bare minimum and hope the new cycle would kind of move on. It seems like it had given everything a stay of execution, you know, all the, the corrupt relationships and whatnot for the time being. Internally, the mafia took its operations below the radar and they negotiated this uneasy truce between the warring clans that historians now call the, the Pax Mafiosi. And then in 1969, after a few years of relative quiet, a crew of mafia hitmen disguised as police broke into the, and forgive my pronunciation here, the Girolama Moncada Construction Company's head office in the Viali Lazio district in Palermo. By the time the gunfight that kicked off was over, the commission boss, Michel de Cobra Cavateo, and four other people were dead. It seems like what happened is that the other bosses had decided that Cavateo was solely responsible for escalating the war back in the early 60s. And there were they were also growing increasingly concerned that because he was aware of this cloud of resentment and suspicion that was following him around everywhere, he was possibly getting ready to flip. He'd drawn out like an organizational chart of the mafia and he carried it around with him all the time so that if the police ever brought him in or he was ever killed, um, that map would be discovered. So we can think of this as the, the concluding act in the first Mafia War. And what makes it all the more significant in hindsight is that, so for one thing, the hitmen were drawn from a broad section of, of Mafia clans to symbolize that this was a united decision that had been taken. But more than that, the assassination was planned and carried out by Toto Rina and Bernardo Provenzano. And they were protégés of a guy called Luciano Leggio, who was the head of the Colleganese faction. The role that they played in planning and carrying out this assassination was a really good indicator of their continuing rise within the mafia as an organization. And it also marked another step towards the Matanza. A good illustration of Cosa Nostra's territorial control and the regime of fear that maintains the code of silence, this omerta, then 
you could actually do worse than read about the careers of Luciano Leggio and his successors, uh, Totorina and Bernardo Provenzano. Leggio managed to lam it for years while running his rackets and building up a portfolio of businesses and ordering murders all over Italy. Uh, Rina was the same, and Provenzano was in hiding from the police and the feds in Interpol for 43 years until his arrest in 2006, which I believe was a world record at the time and is still a world record today. But I might have to do a fact check on that for next episode. So Leggio was acquitted of killing a trade unionist called Placido Risotto in the late 40s after key witnesses withdrew testimony and evidence went missing. And then after the trial, he went into hiding and he began to recruit protégés from Corleone and the surrounding area who were loyal only to him. And this meant that by the late 50s, the Corleone Mafia had essentially split into two factions. Now, the ostensible boss of the family was supposed to be a guy called Mikel Navarra. Navarra was a physician, uh, another physician in a long line of, of doctors and other kind of upper-class people who'd held positions as family bosses, really. And he cultivated an extremely long list of political contacts. And one of his go-to moves at election time was to write hundreds of sick notes for the townspeople of Corleone, certifying that they were suffering from some form of hysterical blindness, which then gave his men legal permission to accompany them into the voting booth as healthcare assistants and make sure that they voted for, you know, the right politicians. Nevada had initially groomed Legia to be his successor, but he seems to have gotten cold feet at some point in the 50s because Leggio wasn't really what you'd imagine a traditional mafia boss to be anyway, at least as far as the mafia likes to think of, of what a traditional boss looks like. Uh, he was extremely uh, unsophisticated. He was illiterate well into his 30s and he had basically no flex or finesse at all. And in fact, his increasing influence in the Corleone Mafia and his uh, proclivity for just fucking stunning outbursts of violence were also likely factors in why Navarro was feeling so spooked in the mid-50s. One story goes that he sent Leggio to hit a mobster who was rumoured to be a police informant. And instead of just a quick bullet in the head and a stealthy escape, Leggio went to the guy's house and tortured him for a number of hours and then when the guy's pregnant girlfriend and her 15 year old daughter got home Leggio shot the girlfriend and then raped and strangled the daughter now bloodbaths like this obviously draw attention from the police and civilians who might otherwise turn a blind eye to a bit of cattle rustling or the odd shakedown they're going to start getting pretty restless when the clan running their town is raping and killing children so Navarra decided to try and kill Leggio, but his guys botched the hit. And Leggio, now alerted to the fact that he was basically a marked man, sent a hit squad after Navarra and killed the doctor and his bodyguards. And he then took over the Corleone Mafia uh, outright. And he was flanked by his number twos, Rina and Provenzano. And he then put them to work purging the remaining Navarra loyalists. And when he was finally tried for Navarra's murder in 1969, I think, it 
didn't take long for proceedings to basically just devolve into farce because witnesses had sudden memory loss and judges and jurors were sent written death threats and were openly threatened in the court by Legio's men. And forensic evidence was tampered with by um, paid off cops and prosecutors. By the time the commission was reactivated after the, the turbulence of the 1960s. The Corleones were so powerful that Legia and a number of other bosses allied to him all had seats on the Mafia's commission. And this meant that they now outnumbered the faction headed by Palermo bosses Gaetano Badalamente, um, Salvatore Inzerillo and Stefano Bantati. And you can think of these guys as kind of the uh, the Palermo wing of the commission at this point. At this uh, juncture, let's take a step back. Let's have another look at this big brass ring that everybody is trying to grab here, which is Sweet Lady H, right? Because by the 1970s, the heroin business was in boom times in the States. Heroin addiction was basically an epidemic. I've been reading some old dog-eared American medical journals. And I don't know if these stats are still accurate, but according to these journals anyway, that were written around the time, in Philadelphia prior to 1962, there were an average of five opioid-related deaths every year. By 1969, that had spiked to an average of 170. The New York chief medical examiner, or the New York City chief medical examiner, reported that 900 people OD'd on heroin in 1969, and that number also continued to creep up for years. And for a while, heroin overdoses, according to this journal, were the leading cause of death for New Yorkers aged between 15 and 35. One in every three GIs returning from Vietnam was nursing a habit. And in places like Haight-Ashbury, the, you know, the hippie commune thing. This is what happens when you've only ever really read these words and you've never actually said them out loud. So I do apologize if there are any uh, Californians listening to this. Um, anyway, places like that had basically, they'd exhausted the, the sunshine optimism of 67 and declined fully into heroin getters. And it's around this time that we've got OPEC just fucking slamming the brakes on the whole uh, good time atmosphere that the Western world had been enjoying for the last 10 years. And then, you know, you've got uh, Nixon and Kissinger just like glowering in the White House. You've got Watergate, you've got urban insurgency. There's a lot of despair in America as the hope of the 60s is just obliterated in the long hangover of the 70s. And people needing any kind of relief they can find from that level of, of angst, of pain, from like the economic stagnation, from an extremely gloomy political scene. This, just this general sense of, of hurt, it meant that heroin was a multi-billion dollar business by 1975. And Nixon's war on drugs, yeah, it led to flashy investigations that shut down large parts of the French connection, and it put new wings on the houses of like Hollywood producers and true crime writers and US prosecutors. But the trafficking was largely unaffected. The syndicates just dismantled the heroin refineries and, and rebuilt them in Sicily effectively. And as Cosa Nostra started to, to dominate the flow of drugs, seizures across the world spiked in the late 70s. And in Sicily, where 
opportunities are pretty limited and economic advancement is hard to come by, the heroin money being invested in local enterprises created jobs and it moved people out of crumbling apartment blocks and peasant houses into these luxury villas. By the late 70s, there were a few Italian magistrates and prosecutors who were starting to follow all this mafia money from the streets of the US and Western Europe through to the Sicilian clans and then all the way up to the elite heights of finance and banking in Rome. And one of the prosecutors chasing all these paper trails and business links was a guy called Giovanni Falcone. And we'll get to him in a little bit, but remember that name. Now, by the mid-70s, Leggio was in prison for good, so Toto Rina and Bernardo Provenzano were basically running his crew with, with his proxy. And throughout the decade, this process of slow encirclement that Leggio had tutored them in began to bear fruit as the Corleone started to dominate the Sicilian side of the heroin trade and redistributed the ransom money from, from kidnappings to weaker, smaller clans that helped build up a base of ferociously loyal disciples drawn from all across the mafia. Now, as an example of how far the Corleones had extended their reach by this time, Legia, from behind bars, coordinated the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III with some guys for the Undrangheta, um, and Getty Senior at the time was one of the, the richest guys in the world. Uh, one of his other sons is the founder of Getty Images. And the whole family is basically a fucking freak show of weird deaths and spooky business deals and God knows what else. So anyway, the Andrangheta kidnappers sent one of Getty Three's ears to his dad to prove how serious they were. And it was only after a really long drawn out negotiation process that Getty Senior finally agreed to pay the ransom money, but only on the condition that it was the tax deductible amount of about $2.5 million. That was literally his negotiating position, by the way, that the ransom had to be tax deductible. Anyway, in the meantime, a bunch of Sicilian gangsters had been sent over to help the five families and the other crews across the states run the American side of the trafficking operation. And these are what came to be called the Zips. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, you've probably seen The Sopranos. Uh, Furio is called a Zip quite often by the other American mobsters. And apparently the reason for that is because they sound like literal zippers when they talk uh, Sicilian. And Italian, apparently because they speak it so fast. Uh, anyway, before too long, the Sicilians were effectively in charge of the US side of things too, which that was fine with crews like the Gambinos and the Bonanos because they'd always been more Sicilian than American anyway. But it didn't go down too well with like the more Americanized mafia families. I can't help but think that there is something quintessentially American about this in terms of all these fucking dickhead American mobsters, like pretending they have some great kinship with the Zips because they happen to be from the same country as their grandparents, only for this to like curdle into envy and resentment when they turn out to be like the definition of an immigrant success story. And they decide they don't feel like being patronized by some New Jersey or New York dipshit, you know. I like how that holds true even when the business is drug trafficking, instead of running a deli or something like that. That is brilliant. 
So here we are. The 70s are about to become the 80s and we are right on the precipice here. And one thing I want you to remember to keep fixed in your mind from here on out is that despite the cops and the politicians all expressing shock and bewilderment at what was happening over the next few years, the police, or at least elements in the police, were fully aware of when, how, and why the second mafia war would unfold because a mafia boss called Giuseppe Di Cristina, who the Corleones were gunning for big time by this point, he'd arranged a secret meeting with some carabinieri in 1978 to try and save himself. And he told them exactly what had been happening in the organization after the, the trials of the late 1960s. And he accurately predicted what would happen once the Corleone family was ready to act. Uh, Rina was now the head of the Corleone clan and Provenzano was a kind of combination underboss and advisor. They'd infiltrated families all over the island, which meant that everyone in the organization was increasingly paranoid about who was actually loyal to them and who was working for the Corleones. And they'd set up an a kind of on-call death squad of about 15 guys whose sole function was to liquidate Corleone enemies in secret. Badalamente and Bontate were completely oblivious. They were blinded, as Di Cristina describes it, blinded by address books full of the names and numbers of powerful politicians and the smack business at its absolute peak, which they were, they were investing the profits from in yachts and banks and... Uh, offshore bank accounts and properties all over Europe. All told, Di Cristina's meeting with the cops was a mammoth, hours-long confession and warning, all wrapped up in one. And the Carabinieri, in return, filed a report, which then disappeared into the police archives. And a few weeks later, Di Cristina was shot dead in Passa di Regano by the Corleone death squad. And this is what Giovanni Falcone would come to call the ghost army. And Passa di Rigano was also a territory controlled by Salvatore Inzerillo. And he was a firm ally of what we've decided to call the Palermo wing of the commission. This was about as clear and unambiguous a fuck you and a threat as it was possible to get. Now, in the meantime, Tommaso Buscetta had fled Italy, apparently... Uh, picking up on these ominous signs after he was placed under house arrest in 1980. And he'd lived through the first Mafia War, don't forget. And a lot of people suspect he played an extremely active role in that war. So he knew full well how to spot the warning signs of something big coming. And then on April the 23rd, 1981, the Matanza began for real. And in short order, Bontate and Inzerillo were shot dead. And within a year, another 200 guys who'd been loyal to that side were gunned down or disappeared. They call these, these disappearances uh, Lupara Bianca, which means white shotgun. Um, and as it became obvious what was happening, this strange kind of mania gripped a lot of mafiosi in Sicily. And they started killing their own bosses and colleagues, people they'd known ever since they were children, started killing them and kind of offering them up as kind of sacrificial offerings to the Corleones. Um, Drive-by shootings and bombings and kidnappings and public executions suddenly became normal. 
And one day in November of 81, for example, uh, 12 different mafiosi were killed in the space of about two hours all around Palermo. And knowing that Buscetta was in Brazil, Rina had his two sons killed as a warning to stay away. Um, the Corleones even had the American mafia hunting down Sicilians who tried to escape the fighting in Italy, uh, Sicilian gangsters. The Gambinos and the, the Calvacanti family especially were happy to oblige with this because the, you know, the heroin money was so good. So for a time, there were Sicilian mobsters turning up dead all over New York and New Jersey. And then once the Corleone's external enemies had been dealt with, they then turned inwards and started purging their own ranks of anyone who they had even the slightest doubts about. And at the same time, they then departed radically from the long-standing mafia orthodoxy when it comes to dealing with representatives of the Italian state. And they began a rolling program of assassinations against journalists and magistrates and cops and politicians. And not as a last resort, as had previously been the policy, but as the first response to any threat, basically. And they basically left a pile of what the Italians call a cadavari exalanti, which is eminent corpses. Now, there's an air of mockery to a lot of what they got up to during this time as well, a kind of really nasty, morbid mockery. Um, for example, in, in 1982, they killed the Italian Communist Party representative for Sicily, uh, Pio Latore, in broad daylight in the middle of Palermo, just because he'd said he was serious about tackling all the chaos that this mafia war was generating. And then they killed the Carabinieri general, Alberto Dalla Chiesi, who was sent to investigate the murder. And it's at this point that I can't help but wonder about some of this, because when you read around the corners of the official accounts of what happened, it seems impossible to believe that these death squads kept being able to pop up again and again and again and carry out these perfectly coordinated assassinations be before vanishing again. I mean... Code of silence or not, that is absurd. And another reason why my suspicions are piqued by um, this particular incident is because you might remember that um, Alberto della Chiesi was also known as Carlo Alberto della Chiesi. And as we discussed in the Aldo Moro episode, he had been making something of a nuisance of himself in Rome because he had been looking into the um, kidnapping of Aldo Moro and he'd also been digging deep into the links between the Italian government and Gladio, organized crime and drug and human trafficking. So I find it very interesting, as I said in the Years of Lead episode, that it was at this moment that he was assigned to Sicily to tackle the mafia war. So that raises the the horrifying possibility really that not only was the Italian government fine with the mafia's internal and external campaign of extermination against all potential enemies and threats to its power, but the Italian government was potentially feeding its own enemies into this war machine to protect itself. Um, and in fact, Dalla Chiesi's son seems to have had similar suspicions about his dad's killing. Uh, he wrote this just after it happened, and this is a quote from him now, quote, 
my dad was used to having the support of all the constitutional parties when he was investigating political terrorism in the 70s. When he got to Palermo, however, he understood that the DC was not prepared to cover him. And in fact, they were actively hostile towards him. And on top of this, although Falcone was living under military guard and had a motorcade protecting him on his way to and from work, he also suspected that elements in the Italian state or police were tipping off the mafia as to the progress of his investigations and even occasionally leaking his whereabouts on off days. Uh, one example of this would be that a bag full of dynamite was found at a cabin where he and his wife had been planning to holiday. So Falcone, Paolo Borsellino and their boss Rocco Cinici, uh, working with a group of similarly anti-mob prosecutors under an investigative um, umbrella that was called the Anti-Mafia Pool, continued to connect the docks and began putting together bigger and bigger cases against mobsters and exposing the huge amount of corruption that was going on all over Italy. And a protest movement that also came to be called the Anti-Mafia began in Sicily. And this was a fusion of people from all across Sicilian society. So we're talking like radical leftists and students and business owners and trade unionists, suburbanites, even clergy. But at the same time, as, as you can read in accounts from the period, the atmosphere in places like Palermo was extremely tense. The mafia was killing people with impunity. It was blowing up newspaper offices and openly threatening to kill prosecutors and judges. So sticking your neck out too far could lead to a pretty brutal reprisal somewhere down the line. And in fact, in July of 1983... They blew up Falcone's boss, Chinichi, in response to a law finally being passed that made it illegal to become a member or associate of a mafia syndicate. The crucial plank of the case that Falcone and Borsellino were building was that the Sicilian mafia was a united organization that had a hierarchy and a ruling body that governed its business decisions. Now, it might sound strange to think that this was considered a crazy conspiracy theory by a lot of people in Italy in the 1980s, but as we said last episode, there were plenty of people, and some of them were sincere, who genuinely believed that the mafia was best understood as a set of folk customs or a peculiar Sicilian way of seeing the world. And basically, Falcone had to prove that the mafia was a formal criminal organization, which meant that the bosses at the top were as responsible for a given crime as the soldiers at the bottom who actually carried it out. Now, Buscetta was finally collared in Brazil in October of 83, and after a botched suicide attempt in Italian custody, Thoroughly disillusioned with being a mafiosi at this point, he decided to turn state's witness and became what they call a pentito. Uh, he refused to talk to anybody except Giovanni Falcone because he knew that Falcone was making a name for himself as a troublemaker, chasing the money and the politicians instead of just sticking to investigating the mafia. This had been a kind of gentleman's agreement between Italian politicians and mafia investigators going back decades, and Falcone was effectively violating this agreement. Now, Buscetta Flippin was greeted with shock in Italy. He wasn't some 
low-ranking mechanic like Joe Valachi or Henry Hill in the States, he'd been initiated into an incredibly selective Palermo family as a 17-year-old, and he'd moved in elite under and upper world circles for his entire career. And as we saw in the episode about the years of lead, Buscetta was privy to some of the most fucked up secrets and conspiracies in Italian post-war history. So when Cosa Nostra heard the news, they immediately killed his brother-in-law to try and shut him up. But Buscetta's cooperation seems to have been a pivotal moment for a lot of guys inside the mafia. Um, it may be the fact that someone of his stature had flipped was a wake-up call but he caused a trickle of defectors to start coming forward. And one guy who followed Buscetta's lead was a Bontate loyalist called Salvatore Contorno. And as an example of how fucking off the deep end the Corleones were by this point, they killed 40 of his relatives. That's four zero. <laughs> 40 of his relatives when they heard that he was talking to Falcone. And then... To try and distract public and police attention from Bruschetta's testimony, Rina ordered the bombing of the 904 express train from Naples to Milan in December of 1984. 17 people died and the papers would call it the Christmas Massacre. Finally, in November of 85, the biggest trial in legal history, world legal history, began in a bomb-proof courtroom in... And I'm going to fuck the pronunciation of this up big time, but it is the Uciadone prison, I think. Uh, this was the maxi trial where 475 mobsters were tried, 120 of them in absentia because they were in hiding, and the indictment alone ran to about 8,000 pages. Uh, Judge Cordano had two replacements on standby because there was no way of guaranteeing his safety. And it was a grinding, exhausting process that took the better part of two years. And all told, just under 2,700 years worth of jail time was eventually handed out. But the problem was that the state itself didn't seem prepared to back up Falcone and Borsellino even at this point. Both of them were threatened constantly with transfers to other parts of the country. The appeals process was drawn out deliberately while the DC inserted their preferred judges into different cases. And the anti-mafia mayor of Palermo, who was called Luca Orlando, uh, well, he was allied to the Communist Party and he was a major Falcone supporter. Uh, he was rat-fucked out of office by the DC because he'd announced an anti-corruption drive in the city government that he hoped would inspire an island-wide overhaul of how politicians did business. Antonio Saeta, uh, one of the anti-mafia magistrates and a Falcone ally, and his son were murdered by the mafia in September of 88. And when the appeals process finally came to an end in November of 1990, dozens of the verdicts were overturned by DC-friendly judges such as Judge Corrado Carnevale in the Court of Cassation, which refuted the central thrust of what they were by now calling the Buscetta Theorem, which was the idea that the Mafia had a unified command structure and functioned as a shadow state. Judge Carnavale, incidentally, 
uh, was nicknamed the Verdict Slayer and would in fact be investigated a few years later for for colluding with the Mafia. Now, Totorina himself was still in hiding and by now he was the undisputed boss of the entire Sicilian Mafia and he was banking on all this fuckery leading to his acquittal because it had always worked before you know, throwing so much shit into the legal machinery of the Italian state that eventually they acquitted mafiosi because the trials had basically turned into jokes. And as a gesture of goodwill, uh, Rina ordered the suspension of all assassinations against representatives of the Italian state. And it's not that this was an end in and of itself to the broader campaign of violence because Rina's number two, Bernardo Provenzano, was handling a kind of war within a war by this point, um, this time against a bunch of expelled mafiosi who'd formed their own syndicate called the Stida in southern Italy. And between 1990 and around 1993-94, Provenzano's guys would kill about 300 teenagers who the Stida had franchised out their drug dealing operations to. Rina never figured that Italy's Supreme Court would reverse most of the acquittals by the Court of Cassation, reaffirming the Buschetta theorem, but that's exactly what they did. The Italian state was feeling the heat from the anti-mafia movement at this point, and it was under pressure from Falcone and the other prosecutors in the anti-mafia pool, and they wound up blocking Judge Carnivale from involvement in the process. And the moment that those acquittals were reversed. Rina found himself on the hook for over a thousand murders and a drug trafficking operation that was bringing in billions to say nothing of all the other rackets and business ventures the mafia was involved in at this point. So the easiest way to describe his reaction here is to say that basically he lost his fucking mind. Um, Pentito have since said that something he used to talk about constantly around this point was how and this is a quote from him by way of Pentito, was what he used to say was, these rats and politicians are the problem, and that's why we've got to kill them and their relatives to the 20th remove. So to achieve this, he turned his main hitter loose, who was a guy called Giovanni Brusca. Now, Brusca was nicknamed the man who kills Christians, which is not a catchy as Scarface or something like that, but it does give you a really good idea of, of what he was all about. And when he turned state's witness years later and was asked how many murders he'd committed, his response was many, many, many more than 200, but less than 300. And his victims were as young as 11. And he was maybe understandably widely feared in the Sicilian underworld. Um, Brusca was tasked with planning Cosa Nostra's response to the Supreme Court verdicts. And it's here where the idea of a concerted terror bombing campaign, basically um, a war against the Italian state itself, first caught on. In March of 1992, Salvatore Lima, who again we'll remember, was Giulio Andriotti's eyes and ears in Sicily. Lima was ambushed and shot dead just outside Palermo. And the motivation was simple. 
Lima was the mafia's conduit to Italian politics, and because he'd been unable to fix the maxi trial or intervene in the Supreme Court verdicts, he was functionally useless to them at this point. And this was essentially a point of no return in the relationship between the mafia and the Italian state. And two months later, in May of 1993, the mafia blew up Giovanni Falcone's motorcade as it was traveling along Highway A29 towards Capacci. And they killed him, his wife, and three of his bodyguards. It's almost impossible really to adequately describe the sheer sense of disbelief that Italians felt when Falcone was killed. And without wanting to sound too trite, it really was a kind of um, JFK moment. Italians of a certain age all remember where they were when this happened. And the wave of shock quickly morphed into just pure rage. The mafia had been dropping cops and judges and journalists for years by this point. But the fact that they managed to get to this guy, Falcone, who'd become a kind of symbol of the anti-mafia movement at this point, it wasn't just it wasn't just horrifying. It felt like an insult. And after this, the Italian state modified the Article 41B law, which essentially meant that everyone convicted of mafia association was barred from contact with their families and with other inmates while they were in prison. And the goal was to prevent the bosses giving any more orders to their guys outside. Uh, just under three months later, though, Paolo Borsellino and his entourage were blown up in Palermo. And Borsellino's murder especially has very, very heavy vibes of state collusion, which we'll return to in a little while. But yeah, um, this whole period basically makes for just incredibly bleak reading. Um, we've gone through, at this point, a litany of murders and bombings and tortures and all the rest of it. But for me, it always really hits home just how desperate and brutal events had become. Uh, when I think about the story of uh, Rita Atria, and she was a 17-year-old girl from a mafia family who started giving evidence to Borsellino and the day that she found out that he'd been assassinated, she threw herself off the balcony of her Rome safe house because she she knew at that point that the state there was no chance the state was protecting her. Um, and for some reason, that suicide stands out to me above everything else as a perfect example of how the mafia is very, very good at just snuffing out all hope, all hope of escape all hope of, of redemption, I suppose. Now, Totorina was finally captured in 1993, and after this, the mafia carried out another series of bombings on the mainland as a way of, of flexing and also as a way of forcing the Italian state to the negotiating table. The problem was, though, that history was already overtaking them. The Clean Hands investigation of 92 
had uncovered a Byzantine system of bribery and kickbacks that resulted in the dissolution of nearly 400 town councils and at one point had about 5,000 state figures from politicians to civil servants under investigation for corruption and collusion with mafia-type organisations. The DC was in full-on collapse mode, which was not helped when Andriotti revealed in 1991 that the Italian state had sanctioned a secret army of neo-fascists funded by NATO and the CIA ever since the end of World War II, Operation Gladia. Giovanni Bruschka says that in the early 90s, Rina was in direct negotiations with the Italian government over the bombing campaign and the trial verdicts. And the story goes that Rina had offered to wind down the bombings if the Italian state commuted some of the maxi trial verdicts and adopted a kind of a hands-off approach to the mafia's presence in Sicily. And in fact, after Rina's capture, his villa was left unguarded for about a day. And by the time the Carabinieri actually searched it, it had been entirely scoured of evidence and the safe in his office had been cracked open and emptied. And an investigation into how this was actually allowed to happen went absolutely nowhere, which only fueled the theories among the Italian public that the Italian state was much, much more deeply involved in all the chaos that had been happening for the last 10 years than they were actually letting on. So let's go a little bit deeper here and we'll go back to Borsellino's assassination because the day that it happened, several agents from Italy's secret service were seen hanging around the Via di Amelio neighborhood in Palermo where the bombing happened. Arena said in 2004 that SISDE agents, the Italian secret services, they'd been present when the bomb was actually detonated and they'd been tipping off Cosa Nostra as to Borsellino's movements in the weeks leading up to the killing. And on top of this, with the DC in freefall, there are pretty strong indications from Mafia Pentito that Silvio Berlusconi sent his advisor, Marcello Del Utri, to negotiate with Cosa Nostra around 1993. The idea apparently was that the Mafia would support Berlusconi's new party, Forza Italia, and in return, a potential Berlusconi government would see what they could do about Article 41 bis and some of the lengthier sentences handed out at the maxi trial. So I'm wondering if it's possible that, uh, if we can call it the Italian deep state, I'm wondering if it's possible that this entity sensed which way the political wind was blowing and with the DC imploding, decided to throw in behind Berlusconi, who was extremely spooked up and had contacts all over Italy's political and intelligence scene. So maybe they brokered this meeting between Berlusconi and the mafia. Uh, Borsellino was said to have been keeping a, an extremely detailed uh, map chart diagram of links between all of Italy's different mafia syndicates and the Italian banking and political elite in what he called his Red Diary. And it had a particular focus on what he suspected to be some kind of secret series of negotiations taking place between the state and the mafia when he was killed. But the thing is, when he was killed, the diary went missing and nobody actually knows what happened to it. And Del Utre would go on to be convicted of mafia involvement and a host of financial crimes like tax fraud and embezzlement. 
And it was also in the early 90s that a weird as fuck group calling themselves the Falange Armata started taking credit, I suppose you could say, for a lot of the mafia bombings that were happening. And there was no political ideology as such. They were just this bizarre, mysterious group that just seemed to kind of emerge like smoke through the cracks and um, became a big tabloid sensation for a little bit. And in fact, at one point, Totorina says that he received a threatening message in prison telling him to keep his mouth shut. And it was allegedly from the Falange Armate. And it didn't go unnoticed that because they were kind of like uh, monopolizing the media's attention at this point, it was distracting from a lot of the stuff that was happening in South Italy and specifically Sicily. And it's always been speculated that it was some kind of smoke show, but nobody is really sure who was behind it or what the, the grander overarching kind of motivation for it was. However, um, one Italian ambassador, uh, Francesco Paolo Fulci, I think that's his name. Um, he reckons that, well, he says that a couple of Falange Armata phone calls were made from the uh, offices and safe houses belonging to Italian secret services. Phone calls where they took responsibility for things like the Capacci bombing. Um, and also the Palastro massacre. So I don't really, I don't really know how f far to go with this because there isn't really much to them in terms of verifiable leads and links and stuff. But it's just another layer of weirdness, I suppose, to go along with everything else that was happening at this point. It was also after the assassinations of Falcone and Borsellino that Buscetta who was apparently inconsolable when he heard about them. Uh, this was when he began to share more and more about the links between the mafia and the Italian state, a lot of which we've already covered, but which opened even more people's eyes to the scale of the problem and to how far into the system the mafia had actually infiltrated itself. And by this point, he'd already been a star witness at the pizza connection trial in the States where his testimony helped convict a number of American mobsters for heroin trafficking. And this was the famous case where it turned out that the uh, Sicilian and American mafias were using pizzerias in New York as fronts for um, laundering heroin trafficking profits. So Buscetta entered the witness protection program and died in Miami in the year 2000. By the mid-90s, there were dozens of mafiosi who were also talking to the state, and this led to even more investigations and convictions. Rina died in a medically-induced coma in prison in 2017, and after his arrest in 93, Provenzano took over. And for a long time, he was considered to be nothing more than a kind of meathead killer and enforcer. But later, informants revealed that his nickname in the outfit was The Accountant because apparently he was, he was blessed with a really good head for numbers 
and strategy. And under his leadership, the mafia stopped the bombing campaign and decided to take its activities underground again. And they returned to their core businesses like construction and protection rackets. And he also modified the mafia's treatment of defectors, offering financial incentives and operating a kind of no questions asked policy for mobsters on the condition that they retracted their testimonies and returned to Cosa Nostra. And as we mentioned last episode, this works like gangbusters and the number of defectors now is diminished significantly from the numbers uh, throughout the late 90s and the early part of the 2000s. Uh, he was finally captured in 2006 and died of bladder cancer in 2016. The assassination of Falcone is also likely a major reason why the DC only managed to scrape 29% of the vote in the 1992 election. Uh, Giulio Andriotti's reputation at this point was shredded. And in 93, he was put on trial in Palermo for colluding with the mafia. And this trial ground on until his eventual acquittal in 1999, but just the mere fact that someone of Andreotti's stature had even seen the inside of a courtroom for mafia association of all things was another big break with the old way of doing things. He died in 2013 and his legacy now is tainted by his shadowy role in all manner of disturbing episodes in Italian history from the years of lead. Uh, as we've discussed, to the collapse of the Vatican Bank, as we will discuss, to the Matanza, to the death of Salvo Lima. A magazine called Panorama summed him up for a lot of Italians when they ran a feature that had a front page picture of him staring coldly at the camera with the words, the devil printed below. The anti-mafia movement is still going pretty strong today, but they're up against traditions and rackets that are literally centuries old. Um, I think I already mentioned this, but when I was in Venice last year, I saw a number of cafes and restaurants that had anti-mafia stickers in their windows. These are people who've gone on a strike from paying the protection money that the mafia demands. And one place I saw that had a huge banner saying, no mafia, Venice is sacred. Uh, which I think it speaks to how much the culture has actually changed since even the 1980s. The Sicilian Mafia itself is still in a period of rebuilding and kind of uh, reorganization. And Italy is still regularly busting up clans and investigating organized crime and political corruption. The Corleone faction as such is pretty much done but plenty of the guys who came up under them and learned from them during the 80s and the early 90s are now in leadership roles all over Sicily and it's here pretty much that the story of the Colleons and the Matanza ends uh, we've gone pretty long I know so if you are still listening at this point I want to say a big thank you um Next episode, we'll be diving into Banco Ambrosiano, the P2 Masonic Lodge, and the death of Roberto Calvi. But for now, that's pretty much it. Um, remember to, you know, recommend to friends and loved ones. Subscribe if you are not already subscribing. And don't get captured. Cheers, guys, and I will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.
Roly-poly, 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 roly-